Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. To teach what holiness was, this is what shows up in the commandments, this is what shows up in the rules and regulations, this is what shows up in the experiences they go through for the next bunch of the Old Testament books. Only God is truly holy, and we are to imitate him. What belongs to God is holy. Therefore, if we belong to God, we are holy. Separating ourselves from the rest of the world is something we need to take seriously and do something about. An essential mark of holiness, an essential trait of holiness is good morality. If there's morality, good morality, you know there's holiness. Anyone who violates moral rules is unholy. We, on our own, cannot approach the holy God. We are too immoral. We are too unholy. We cannot approach the holy God. Now, those things are a little different for us than they were for them because they did not yet have Jesus as a substitute. We do. Righteousness means having a right covenant relationship with God. And the people, without having the Holy Spirit to empower them, without having Jesus to set them free from the slavery of sin yet, they had a real hard time of staying righteous. In Deuteronomy, we're going to keep your finger in Exodus, but switch over to Deuteronomy 6. This is another place where Moses is giving out the Ten Commandments. It's mentioned more than once. Deuteronomy is to the right. Remember, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, verses 4 to 5. Moses is saying... Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. No other gods, no Egyptian gods, no pagan gods. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Who else gave that command? Jesus. Jesus quoted Moses when he said that. Jesus wasn't making it up as part of a new covenant. Jesus said, Yes, you've got the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to boil it down for you. The greatest commandment is love your God with your whole heart, all your strength, and the second is like it. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. If we love God that completely, then we automatically do love our neighbor and we do love ourselves. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Going back to Exodus. In chapter 20, we've got the giving out of the Ten Commandments. The first of ten commandments deal with the first part of those two commandments of Jesus. Love our God with our whole hearts and whole minds and whole strengths. The first commandment is how we relate to God. Have no other gods besides me. Do not carve idols. That's in verse 3. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, keep holy the Sabbath day. The next seven describe how we relate to each other. It's the second half of the greatest commandments that Jesus gave about loving each other. Verse 12, honor your mother and your father. 13, don't kill. 14, do not commit adultery. 15, don't steal. 16, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. 17, do not covet your neighbor's house or property, nor anything else that belongs to him. So not just the house, but everything. Wife, slave, ox or ass, nothing. That's the breakdown of the Ten Commandments. What God was also trying... Yes? 
Well, first of all, the crucifix is God. It's not a false idol, but it's not an idol because we're not worshiping that piece of wood or ceramic as if it were where the God dwelled. Idols, when they built the golden calf, when Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments written on the tablets, they thought the God dwelled in that golden calf. And so when it was melted down, they were destroying the God for its power. You can also say it this way. The statues of Mary, Joseph, Jesus on the cross, they serve the same function as a photograph does. It's a reminder. We carry photographs in our wallets of our children. We carry around on our walls favorite mementos to remind us of something special. They're just mementos. They're not idols. And there's a difference between something reminding us of God and something that we worship because it's God. None of us have statues, most likely, in our home that we worship. But we worship the use of money. We worship what money can buy for us. We worship cosmetics. Oh, I can finally look nice if I put this on. Notice I don't wear any. If you don't love me for the way I look naturally, then the heck with you. <laughs> you know, I don't mean that. I love you all. But we worship our prestige that we've earned, or we worship the car that looks so fancy. This shows how much I've made it in life. I have a really brand new car that costs a lot of money. But there's a lot of things we worship that that first commandment is talking about. And if you take a look at my booklet on the Ten Commandments called An Examination of Conscience, it will take you through every single one of the Ten Commandments and show how it applies to your life. And it asks questions so that when you read through that, you'll say, oh my gosh, I've broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. Helping us to take the Ten Commandments to a deeper level than we've looked at them before The whole point of this examination of conscience and looking at the Ten Commandments for what it is really saying to us and looking for those commandments of Jesus and saying, oh my gosh, I don't give to everyone who asks. I don't pray for those who treat me badly. Well, yeah, I do pray for them. God, get them, is what I pray. (laughs) It's like, wait a minute. I need to do some changing here, some repenting, and I don't know how to do that. God, I need your help. I need supernatural help to live the way Jesus asked me to live and the way the Ten Commandments asked me to live. That's what this Bible conference is all about, to help us become empowered and to heal us from the things that keep us from living what Jesus wants us to live and the Ten Commandments tell us to do. The Holy Spirit puts his holiness in us more than before because we're asking for it. We want to live a holy life better than we have before. And we need his supernatural help to do it. So the whole point of looking at what the commandments are really saying to us and what scriptures are really saying to us and what Jesus is really saying to us, the whole point is we are called to change, to become more like God so that he can be more of our God and we his people, living out our covenant with him. The point is we are called to be more like Jesus so that we can change the world, so that we can have more peace in our own lives, and that brings more peace into our own homes, and then our neighborhoods, churches, workplaces, etc. We are called to be apostles, and we can do that through the power of God. But first is the awareness in our minds, what we need 
to change, how we need to change, where we're not living out the Ten Commandments, where we're not living out the Sermon on the Mount, where we're not being God's people. When we become aware of that, then we can ask for his supernatural help to change, and we don't expect it to happen all at once. It's a lot of little baby steps because that's all we can handle, and that's okay. And then the world in us and then around us is changed. Then comes the solutions to our problems, unexpected ways of, of solving them. Maybe not the ways we wanted it to be solved, but the perfect way for them to be solved. Then comes the unity. The divisions come to an end because we do things the way God empowers us to do things. That's where the difference sets in. That's where this Bible conference will make a difference in your life. And if all it's done is given you head knowledge, you know what the stories are in the Old Testament, you know about it only in your head, and it doesn't change your life at all. You've wasted your time in here because it doesn't make a hoot of a difference to the kingdom of God or to this world. And it doesn't make a hoot of a difference to your own life and your own problems. But if you let God work in you, build your awareness, open your minds, and then ask God to empower you to become what he's asking you to be, your life will never be the same as it was before. It will be so much more awesome, sometimes more difficult. But even in that difficulty, it's more awesome because you're doing things God's way. <clears throat> okay. What God was trying to accomplish at this point in the Israelites' history same thing he's trying to accomplish this point in our lives at this Bible conference is that he is the king. There was no king of Israel. There was a king in Egypt. They were used to seeing a pharaoh in charge. But now God is saying, no, no king. I am your king. Later on in the history, the people insist on kings, so they get kings. But right now God is saying, that's not what I want. I am your king. I want you to let me be your lawmaker, your king. Because I am a loving king. And no other human king that you ever put in my place in charge of you will love me and care for you the way I do. By the way, with these Ten Commandments and the 613 rules and regulations, Israel became the most fair. Their laws were the most fair and humane in the whole known world. In Exodus 24, the people agree to the covenant. The way they show this agreement is that each tribe, each of the 12 tribes, sacrifice bulls. Moses sprinkles half of the blood of this bull on an altar. And this symbolizes that God is now forgiving them for all their past sins. Again, there is blood forgiving us for sins. Moses sprinkled the rest of the blood, the other half, on the people. And this is the people's way of saying, I accept this blood on me. Like us saying, I accept the, the blood of Jesus. I accept this blood on me as a way of showing that I accept this covenant in my life. And to sin after being sprinkled with this blood meant that they were incurring blood guilt. Do you ever hear that phrase, blood guilt? It comes from that. They had had that blood sprinkled on them to, to sin afterwards, to be guilty afterwards, meant they had blood guilt on them. And with blood guilt on them, they were subject to God's judgment. In Exodus 25, they build a royal tent for God. God gave the directions for it. It was to be in the center of the camp. God's to be the center of our lives. This tent was called the tabernacle. 
Think of the tabernacle we've got in church. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. And we know whose dwelling place it is there in church. The tent was also called sanctuary. And the word sanctuary means holy place. Sanctus means holy. Sanctuary, holy place. The tent had two parts in it. The holy place, the sanctuary, and the most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant that they built, which housed the Ten Commandments, it was put into the most holy place. And the high priest, and only the high priest, could go into this most holy place once a year only on the Day of Atonement, which I'm going to describe in a couple of minutes. They made this tent with the best of fabrics, the most expensive dyes, and they framed it in gold because this was God's place. They wanted to give him the best. They made the base of the tent out of silver, and this was melted down silver, melted from the money that the Egyptians gave them when they left Egypt. And this symbolized that money was paid as a ransom for each of the firstborns who were saved when the Egyptian firstborns were being killed. And we know how Jesus paid the ransom for our lives. Aaron, Moses' brother, who went to Egypt with him to help him get the people away from Pharaoh. Aaron and his sons, they were of the tribe of Levi. They became the priests who served at the tabernacle. And only priests from his family could enter the tabernacle. Now, Exodus 32. Moses goes up the mountain again. He's already done the the Ten Commandments. They've already built the Ark of the Covenant. They've built the tent for the dwelling place. Forty days more, Moses is up on the mountain getting more instructions from God, more rules and regulations about how to be his people. This is when they thought Moses was never coming back. The golden calf they made, Canaan God. I said it was Egyptian before, but by now they were getting influences from all over the place. And they were partying like the pagans. Moses comes down off the mountain and discovers what they're doing. That's an interesting story. You've got to read it. Moses' reaction, Aaron's reaction. Aaron is going, wow, sounds like they're celebrating God. And Moses goes, uh-uh, it doesn't sound like it's God they're celebrating. It sounds like a pagan orgy to me. Because they had already accepted the blood on themselves to agree to the covenant, now they were under a blood guilt. That meant they had said, Okay, if I ever sin, you know, I I deserve God's judgment. Okay, now it's time for God's judgment. God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them and start all over again. And Moses begs God to forgive them. Moses is a Messiah here. And he offered up his own life as a substitute for the people. God, don't kill them, kill me instead. Save them and kill me. Who does that remind us of? God said, yep, Moses, that's exactly what I was looking for. I didn't really want to kill those people. I wanted somebody to be willing to be their Messiah, and you just offered yourself as a substitute. But because you're not my son Jesus, he didn't say it that way, but because you're not my son Jesus, you can't do what Jesus will do someday, so I won't kill you either. This is the first atonement. What God sent instead, because there was no real death of anybody taking place, no shedding of any blood, God sent a plague which killed only those Israelites who did not repent of their sin. God warned the people that when they got to the promised land, there were a few conditions they needed to follow through on in order to succeed in this plan. They were not to make any treaties with the Canaanites because there would be compromise. 
they were to wipe out the pagan religion there because there was to be no compromise, only worship of God and God alone. Because if Israel did compromise, Israel would be sucked into the sin of those other nations, those other false gods worship. They would be committing spiritual adultery. So God was real strict with this. No compromises or you're going to end up being sucked into that sin again. And through the course of their history then, what happened next, the many punishments that happened upon the Israelites came as a result of their failure to heed this warning. And God warned them over and over and over again. They walked right into their own punishments. Now let's jump into real quickly Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All in one breath. These are about the laws, and the laws are indicating God's love. There were three categories. I mentioned 613 laws. There were three categories of these laws. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. Now a lot of people will say, wait a minute. I've heard, for example, let me give you a concrete example. The New Testament says that homosexual activity is sinful. The Old Testament also says that in these 613 rules. I have had it said to me, well, that only applied to back then. You don't take it literally because, after all, there's a lot of those laws back then we no longer obey. A lot of those laws had to do with ceremonial, rituals, animal sacrifice, for example. God made it a commandment to do. Well, that's no longer a commandment. So it's been used as a justification for homosexual activity. The Old Testament is just filled with a lot of rules we no longer apply to our life today. So therefore, this doesn't apply anymore. Well, the fact is, of the three kinds of laws, the civil and ceremonial were for the day. But the moral laws are God's unchanging laws. Morality doesn't change. Ceremonies change. Rituals change, but not morals. So we need to look at the moral laws and say it's still the same today. The Day of Atonement, a key, key Jewish holiday still celebrated today. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the Day of Atonement is also called the day of the covering of sin. And here's why. It was one day a year. The high priest would enter the most holy place in the tent. The nation fasted as a sign of mourning over sinfulness. That's where we get our Lenten fasting from. Two goats were offered. One was sacrificed, and its blood was sprinkled on Yahweh's throne. In other words, on the Ark of the Covenant. Where is the Day of Atonement? Leviticus. Leviticus. David Choman is chapter 16. Okay, two ghosts were offered. One was sacrificed. Its blood was sprinkled on Yahweh's throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And the other goat was driven into the desert, which symbolized driving away the sins of the people. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. The sins were escaping into the desert on the goat. The blood that was sprinkled on Yahweh's throne was the symbolizing of the blood is covering our sins. Skip ahead to 1 Peter 4. It's very near the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, let your love for one another be intense because love covers a multitude of sins. 
This is relating directly to when the blood was covering the multitude of sins of the Israelite people on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus, his blood, covered our sins. That's why we're washed clean. His blood covers our sins. It hides our sins. When we love each other intensely, not just our spouses and our children, but when we love anyone intensely, we are covering their sins with love. We are hiding their sins. To love somebody that intensely means that when they sin, we don't tell others about it. We hide it. Not as in keeping a secret, like sometimes something needs to come out into the open so that it can be dealt with, so that somebody can come out of denial or whatever, or so that it can be a witnessing tool to help others who are in similar problems. But when, I'll pick on Ralph, when Ralph argues with me at home, it isn't fair, if I were to go to my friends and say, Ralph did it to me again, Ralph sinned against me again, I'm not loving Ralph. But if instead I go to my friends and they say, so, how's your relationship with Ralph? Then I can say, oh, God's working. <laughs> God's teaching us lots of things. I'm not lying, but I am covering up Ralph's sin. They don't have a clue whether it was my fault or Ralph's fault or that anything is wrong. We need to protect our loved ones with intense love by covering their sins. It also means that if our son... If he steals money, maybe God is saying at that point in time, we're supposed to take that money out of our account and give it to whomever he stole from so that no one finds out. It's not always what's the right thing to do because maybe God is saying, no, that person needs to learn something from what will happen here if he's uncovered. But we need to not assume every time that that's what God wants. We need to be doing whatever love would do, and God is love. How many times does God let us get away with things? How many times do we sin, and God's not there going, uh-uh-uh, bad, 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 I'm going to expose you. How many times have we gotten away with stealing things from work, pencils, pens from work, or cheating on our income taxes? You know, when we cheat on our income taxes, God is certainly powerful enough to say, oh, IRS people... Take a look at this a little closer, and we end up getting a penalty for it. But God says, hmm, well, the IRS people are missing that. Okay. And that's all he does. Except to put it on our hearts, uh, you sure you want to do that again next year? He's a very gentle God, and we are to be gentle too. That's what First Peter 4, verse 8 is talking about. I'll just give a real quick summary here of... What happens after all these rules and regulations are given to the people? Some of the rules and regulations dealt with uh, what seemed like pretty strange things, bodily fluids, skin diseases and death, and how to treat it. Like, for example, remember how in gospel stories we hear about a woman who had her period, so therefore she was unclean, and no man was supposed to touch her until she had gone through purification. This comes back from those original rules and regulations that dealt with bodily fluids. Now, we know that a woman is not impure when she's having that time of month. But what God was trying to teach through this regulation, and similar ones, is the difference between things of the earth and things of the kingdom of God. Things of the natural world had to be treated differently 
from things of the supernatural world, God's supernatural kingdom. The natural world was different from the perfect, the holy, the eternal, the divine. That's what these rules were teaching. This just gives you a little sample of how some of those rules and regulations, they don't seem to make sense to us. There really was a point behind it. The Israelites are finally ready to reach the promised land when all these rules and regulations have been given out to them and they accept it upon themselves. The book of Numbers tells the story of their travels through the wilderness and all the complaints they made along the way. And each time, God does not get angry at the people, but he does get angry. He gets angry at the things within them that cause them to sin. When we do sin, God is not angry at us. He's angry at what is in us that causes us to sin. When we are angry at each other, are we angry at the person or what's within them that caused them to do the bad thing? We tend to be angry at the person, don't we? Something else to go to confession for. Almost a year of living at the base of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were written, about a year later, Moses says, okay, it's time to go now to the promised land. That's several hundred miles away just to reach the south end of Canaan. And this is in Numbers chapter 13. And this, by the way, is not very far at all from where Abraham used to live. They reach the border of Canaan and they send one man from each tribe of Israel into Canaan to scout it out. I don't know why they need to scout it out. God says, go into the promised land. I've got this place saved for you. This is what I promised your father Abraham and everybody since him. Go. Well, let's scout it out to check out this promised land. Do we really want to move there? After 40 days of exploring this, remember Jesus spent 40 days in the desert? After 40 days of exploring this, they come back with a report. Wow, the size of the grapes are huge. It's great grazing territory for our flocks. There's wealth to be had here. This is fantastic. However, the people who live there are mean and tough. We need to be afraid. Afraid? With God in charge? How many of us have any fear in our lives? Well, just a couple people. That's not bad. (laughs) Fear stops us from going into whatever promised land God's got waiting for us. Whatever solutions to our problems he's got waiting for us, fear holds us back. The Israelite people say, I don't like these reports. Maybe it sounds like there's milk and honey flowing, but I don't want to have to deal with these Canaanites. They're mean people, God. You don't know what you're talking about sending us into their midst. And at this point, they really commit mutiny. In Numbers chapter 14, they say, Moses is trying to lead us into this problem. Let's pick a new leader. Someone who thinks like us, and let's go back to Egypt. Remember what it was like in Egypt? Forget about the slavery, but remember what it was like in Egypt? We had all the things we ever needed there. They wanted us there. Yeah, they wanted us there for the slavery, but let's forget about that. They wanted us there. The Canaanites, they don't want us here. Moses has to be a priest again and intercede for them and say, God, don't listen to them. God, don't destroy them for this rebellion. God, lead us into the promised land anyways. So God said, you don't want to go in the promised land? Fine. But Moses is still your leader. Just go back into the desert. And what he was accomplishing there was, you people, you're cowards. 
My army can't be cowards. We cannot conquer this territory if you're afraid. Fear doesn't get us into the promised land. So go back into the desert for a time of purification. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. The Israelites are now going to spend 40 years in the desert for purification. The generation who was afraid died off. The new generation has courage. The new generation is ready to do things God's way. And they go back to the promised land ready to conquer. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit gnm.org today.